Welcome to the Nathan Crane Podcast, your number one source for everything holistic health. Listen to guest interviews with top doctors and health experts and discover cutting-edge solutions for living your healthiest, longest, and most fulfilling life. There's never been a better time to become healthier, happier, and more alive. And now your host, best-selling author, inspirational speaker, and cancer health researcher and educator, Nathan Crane. Ariel, thank you for uh, thank you for joining me here. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Nathan, it is my joy and pleasure to be here today. So, what got you into neuroscience? <laughs> That's a great question. So I laugh because I couldn't think of anything more fascinating to understand than the brain. You know, the brain is the organ that really determines our entire experience of life. What we see, hear, think, feel, experience who we are. All of this to some level either starts or ends in the brain. And so for me, I really wanted to understand how it is that we can enhance our experience of life, how we can understand our experience of life through the organ that really creates our experience, the brain. So I'm sure you're familiar with the, the, the stomach as a, the concept of the stomach as a second brain, and even the, the concept of the heart as a third brain, or even some would argue the first brain. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And how do all these actual organs tie together? Um, and, and then we'll get into, um, I, I want to know more about your background and, and your fascination on the brain as well. And some of the neuro and some of the research you've done around neuroscience, because I think that's really, uh, interesting and how that relates to health and well-being and longevity and disease prevention, uh, helping the body to fight disease naturally. All of this ties together, and we'll, I'm excited to get into that with you. But um, uh, Let's start so I, with the gut and the heart. Yeah, let's start there. So our body is obviously connected, and as much as the brain can determine what might happen in the heart, the heart also speaks to the brain. So there are just as many, if not more, innervations from the brain to the heart as there are from the heart to the brain. When we talk about a brain, what we're typically referring to is a collection of neurons and ganglions, a collection of stuff that can then control another part of the body or speak to another part of the body. So when in the case of the heart, the brain can help to determine the muscular movements of the heart, the opening and closing of the aorta. Um, but that is also determined by other information in the body, like how much oxygen you might have, the activity of your vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is actually one of the things that helps tie the brain to the heart, to the gut. It is the largest nerve in your body. And it's responsible for a lot of what we're going to talk about in meditation and how the body relaxes. So the brain is the system in the body that actually has the most terminal endpoints for all of the other systems in our body, your sight, your smell, your hearing, your thinking. And as we put together the totality of those experiences, there is a consciousness or an awareness that arrives in the brain, in the mind. The heart is pretty good localization center in that we can feel things in our heart. We have emotional experiences that definitely involve the systems of the heart and how fast our blood is pumping, you know, how, how much we feel the tightening of our chest. 
And the stomach is another phenomenal system that has a ton of innervation through the vagus nerve from the brain and the rest of the body. And we also feel sensations in our gut. What we eat in the microbiota affects our entire body. So these systems certainly work very symbiotically together. Um, but I tend to, as many scientists do, put the locus of our experience into the brain because it has most of the juice that goes there. If you want to talk from a spiritual level or an additional level, you may be able to think about different energy centers in the body and how those may tie together or relate to the body systems. You know, there's many other different systems of understanding how the body may work together to create an experience of life or soul or consciousness. Um, but when we kind of dive right down to the scientific one, we're talking about all the bits and pieces that speak together in the organ in our head. So as a scientist, how do you personally look at spirituality? Oh, I love that question. So I look at it um, openly and lovingly as well as skeptically. So I, you know, embrace the idea that there is far more beyond what we can know. Um, what we currently know is incredibly limited, particularly when you talk about organs as complex as the brain and, you know, phenomena as complex as humans. <laughs> we, we go well beyond what we can possibly grok with our, with our um, current tools and techniques and understanding. What we know is, is a tip of the iceberg. Um, I certainly myself have experienced energetic phenomena um, and energetic healing. And one of my good friends, Dr. Shamini Jane, um, has a whole really school of research on bioenergetics and how that may actually affect our, our health and our well-being. So I'm very, very open to all of the ways that we as humans may connect within ourselves, connect to one another, connect to something greater, whether it's energy energetic, physical, metaphysical. Um, we just haven't quite from a Western scientific perspective understood what those ways may be. Although other cultural lenses have helped us touch it, understand it, feel it, know it um, from different methodologies and vantage points for years. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, something I remember hearing uh, Wayne Dyer, Dr. Wayne Dyer speak about years ago, which was he was talking about, you know, this idea that uh, a human being, you know, all of this that we experience is kind of by accident, you know, it's just this all accidental kind of evolutionary process with no outside intelligence that uh, helped to determine the formation of what we experience today. And he said the odds of that happening, right? I mean, think about the intricacies of the, the human body, the brain, the heart, the digestive system, you know, the trillion, the 50 trillion cells that are in the body that are, you know, replicating and dying off and cancer cells are being formed in our lymphatic system and our immune system. They're killing these cells, removing them. All the, you know, thousands, actually millions and billions of processes that are happening in the body every single day in harmony with nature, with plants and animals in the the water, the soil, everything, all just working synergistically and symbiotically together. He's like, the odds of that happening um, accidentally are like if a tornado went through a junkyard and took all of the junk that's there, the cars, the engines, the tires, everything, twirled all up in the tornado. And when it left and it finished, in its path, what it left was a perfect Boeing 747 airplane. Like that's literally the odds that all of this 
is an accident. If you look at the odds of one in 100 billion, trillion, gazillion, whatever the number would be. And, uh, and, and I like that because that analogy is, is something that you can kind of grasp onto to, re- to, to recognize that, hey, there is some higher intelligence, whatever we want to call it, God, spirit, source, creator, universe, whatever we want to call it, but some higher intelligence that is animating and, and breathing through our experience. And I think most of us have felt that, especially if you meditate. Right. And so you have a strong background in meditation. And and how did neuroscience lead you to meditation or did meditation lead you to neuroscience? Where did that connection come from? Meditation came out of neuroscience for me. I was training as a neuroscientist and I was practicing as a psychotherapist. And as a psychotherapist, one of the things that you learn as a frontline intervention for things like anxiety and depression is meditation. And so I would be teaching my patients to meditate and doing a terrible job because I was a terrible meditator. And as a neuroscientist, I would be reading all the papers at that time, you know, it was in the order of hundreds or maybe just less than a thousand papers talking about the value of meditation for the brain in a range of ways. Now it's on the order of 10,000 plus papers talking about the value of meditation. And so I'd be reading these papers. I'd be knowing that it was great for your mind and body, um, both spiritually and physically. And I sucked at meditation. And so it was really through the process of trying to teach my patients who would go home and it was like, did you meditate? Uh, I think so. Um, And then trying to figure it out myself that I ended up uh, building Muse with my team. And it was in the course of building Muse that I actually figured out how to meditate. And from there, it was like, oh my God, you know, the 2000 years of history that I'd be reading because I was reading all these books and, you know, waiting for this wisdom to hit me in the teeth um, and, you know, intellectually knowing all these things. But it wasn't until I actually engaged my meditation practice and figured out what I should be doing. And I sort of like felt it. And that was, that was the moment that opened up the 2000 years of history. It's kind of like your first kiss. For me, it was totally like my first kiss. Um, I remember being a little kid and listening to the radio and they were always singing about love. And I was like, why are there so many songs about love? Like, you know, why is this the thing that everybody sings about? And I was like 14 and I hadn't been in love. And then I was 16 and I had been in love and I had my first kiss and I couldn't stop thinking about, you know, the guy and the thing and all the things. And it was like so overwhelming. And I listened to a song on the radio and they're talking about like love and this thing. And I was like, yes, finally get it. It means something. Yeah. Now I know why everybody talks about love. And so my meditation experience, when I finally got it, it, it was like that. That was my first kiss. That was like, oh, now I understand when, you know, they talk about being in a place of equanimity, what that can feel like, you know, when they talk about being able to be in oneness or have a sense of awareness or have awareness beyond awareness, that's what they're starting to talk about it. It finally made sense. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> what a great experience to to uh, relate it to. Um, I, you know, I can kind of relate as well where early on meditation was kind of this mm, sporadic, uh, ethereal kind of, you know, intangible thing that I was trying to grasp until I started to understand it more. And I think that's, for me, that's what was really helpful was understanding, you know, what is meditation actually and in, in, in what are the different types of meditations and what kinds of meditations can you do? And it's not just one thing. It's not just what 
I thought, and I think a lot of people think when they first hear meditation is, oh, you just have to shut all your thoughts off, right? <laughs> Which is impossible, really. I yes. mean, it's impossible. And that's not really what meditation is. But somehow that in the Western world, like that's what most people think of as meditation for whatever reason. Oh, you have to just, you know, shut up all your thinking. And there's so it's, it couldn't be further from the truth, right? And there are so many different ways of meditation, but the benefits are are clear. As you said, now there are literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of papers on meditation. You know, all of the cancer patients that we work with and uh, patients that are dealing with chronic diseases, even heart disease, diabetes, autoimmune disease, we highly, highly recommend everybody start a daily meditation practice. And there are a million ways to do it. And I, I encourage people to try different forms of meditation. Because for me, it was experimenting with it. I started meditating uh, back in around 2005, 2006, uh, I think was when I formally sat down cross-legged on my bed for the first time was like, I'm going to meditate, you know, <laughs> like I just, I just had that. And I was, I think 19, 18, 19 at the time. And I just knew that's what I needed to do. And so I just started sitting quietly and didn't know what I was doing, but I stuck with it and I kept learning and then started listening to guided meditations and, and then affirmations and, and then, um, you know, all different kinds chanting with Hare Krishna's and sitting and meditating for hours on the beach and sitting at the feet of master Buddhist monks and sitting and meditating with Zen masters. And, and, you know, there's so many ways to meditate. Some of my best meditations, I think have actually just been out in nature, just sitting quietly observing the ocean or sitting by a fire, right. Or sitting, I mean, like a fire to me is one of the most powerful forms of meditation. It's like, I, it's like hypnosis. If you just yeah. sit and observe a fire, your thoughts kind of start to quiet themselves and you can like really get into the flame. And all of a sudden you get into a almost transcendental state. And so, you know, people have probably heard of transcendental meditation people, you know, there's so many forms, but what were, what are some of the meditation forms or practices that you discovered that that you think have been instrumental in in your own in your own life and in the work you do sure oh i'm taking myself out of the little trance here as you were describing the fire like i could see it and i found myself you know imagining the fire and feeling the fire and the warmth of it and the stillness um and what you're really describing there is the experience of mindfulness being singularly engaged in a thing that's in front of you and feeling it and seeing it and being so absorbed in it that you, in a sense, lose yourself, that your own thoughts quiet down and settle because you are just in the present moment with the thing in front of you. So a lot of people have heard this term mindfulness, but it's not really obvious what it means and what its differentiation from meditation is. So meditation is the practice that you do, the thing that you do, and I'll describe some different forms of meditation. And then mindfulness is the skill that is built from it that you take throughout the world with you. So you can be mindful of your thoughts, feelings, sensations, environment, and the world around you. So for me as a practice, my meditation, which started really with focused attention meditation, allowed me to build my mindfulness in the world. And I think it's really worth delving into focused attention at meditation, because that's typically the first form of meditation that people learn. And it's the easiest one to understand and understand how this whole notion of, you know, quieting your thoughts is actually not really the goal or the point. 
So in a focused attention meditation, what you do is you focus your attention on a single object. It can be something visual like a candle or a fire. Um, often it's the breath because it's there. So you focus your attention on your breath, just on this one thing that's in the here and the now. And eventually your mind will wander away from your breath and onto a thought. And once you realize you have a thought, it's your job to, instead of following that thought, like we all do, just let go of the thought, let it pass and just bring your attention back to your breath. So meditation is not about having no thoughts and Frankly, I laughed when you talked about having no thoughts because I think levitating is probably almost as unlikely as having absolutely no thoughts for a beginner meditator. So, you know, it's not the goal. Um, it is the process of learning to observe your thinking. That is mindfulness, the observation of your thoughts, feelings, environments. Observe your thinking and rather than getting caught up in those thoughts and following them about, you know, the anxious thing or the traffic or the thing that you forgot or the person who might not, not like you or whatever it is, you instead allow yourself to move your attention elsewhere back to your breath. And when you've done that, you have successfully, quote unquote, uh, engaged a focused attention meditation. And as you do that over time, and as I did that over time, it allowed me to become far more aware of my thinking. And instead of going through the world on autopilot with a whole bunch of thoughts in my head that I'm just thinking because they're there, I began to realize, oh, I'm having that thought. Is that thought serving me right now? Is it useful? Is it even true? And once you're able to have that separation or that metacognition, the ability to, to see and think about your thinking, analyze your own thinking, you can then say, hey, that thought has rolled around in my head four times now. It's not actually helpful at that moment. I don't need to be thinking it. I can shift my attention elsewhere. And when you do that, all of a sudden in that moment, I like changed my relationship to my thinking. It was no longer something that just happened, but something that I could then have a choice about. And, you know, it was like I could tend to the garden of my mind in a different way. It wasn't just like a downpour all the time. I, I could choose the weather. I could choose what was going on in there. And from there, it allows you to let go of those negative, anxious thoughts. It allows you to unhook from those stories that you tell yourself all the time. It allows you to, you know, every time that inner critic goes off for me, I, I would allow myself to go like, oh, my inner critic just said something. I don't need to believe that. That doesn't have to be true, you know? It might have told me that my hair looks stupid or, you know, that I screwed up this thing and I, you know, I'm bad because of it. But actually, I, I don't need to listen to that story again. I can change that. And that was the beginning of a massive shift in my own life. Yeah, that's so powerful um, that you've done that in your own life. And you just reminded me of, because I was thinking, you know, when did I have that first major shift? Because, you know, you practice this for so long, it becomes automatic, right? And it's yeah. like, you, you just get so used to being primarily in control of your thinking after years of practice of it, that it's like that what you're describing before, I'm like, oh, yeah, what was that like? What was that like to have all of these incessant negative thoughts, you know, spinning around all the time that I really didn't have a lot of control over? Um, and, and I remember the first, one of the really first, like kind of awakenings to that. And I was probably 
2008, maybe 2007. And I was going through a rough patch and I was sleeping on a mattress in the living room of uh, my ex-girlfriend's apartment in Oceanside, Mm -hmm. California, had no money, had no job, had like no gasoline to put in my car. It was a pretty rough time. And the cat didn't, you know, it was a male cat and didn't like another male in the house with the two ladies. So it would come over and pee all over my bed. (laughs) And and it it wasn't a very pleasant experience that I, you know, the the only job I got at the time was like selling t-shirts down all the way. I had to go all the way down to Embarcadero, San Diego from North County to South County, take the train. And basically I would make enough money to like just pay for my train ticket to go back and forth. So it was like pretty pointless. And, and I remember um, I was doing a lot of meditating and a lot of deep thinking at the time. And I started reading the, and I started chanting with uh, the Hare Krishnas. And I just, I've always had this kind of openness to all kinds of spiritual traditions. And so I started reading the Bhagavad Gita. And I remember one time I was reading it before bed and meditating. And then I woke up the next morning and I woke up and saw my thoughts upon waking for like the first time. I think probably ever in my life. And they were very negative. You know, they were very complaining. They were complaining about, oh, I'm laying on this bed that smells like piss and cats peeing all over me and I have no money and then blah, 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 right? All the poor me, poor me, poor me, which is understandable. It was a pretty rough situation, but I woke up with just these automatic negative thoughts focusing on all the negative things in my life at the time. And I immediately caught it. And the moment I caught it Mm -hmm. and then decided, no, I don't want to have those thoughts. I don't want to wake up and have thoughts of negativity. It's that first awareness of it and catching it and stopping it, right? That it it starts to give you back control. And then from there, it's practice, practice, practice of, okay, no, what do I want to focus on? Let me focus on the things I'm grateful for. Let me focus on, look, I'm, I'm alive. I'm healthy. You know, I have opportunity in front of me. Um, You know, I've got, I don't know where my next meal is going to come from, but I know it's going to come like just the small things. I go outside and breathe fresh air and so start focusing on gratitude. And it wasn't too long after that, that opportunities did come and I did pull myself out of that. And I did start, you know, down a uh, continue forward into a good path. But, you know, taking and, and at the same time, it was like doing the dishes, and catch the thinking, oh, I hate doing dishes. This is terrible. I don't want to wash dishes and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, oh, no, I can, I can stop that and just be like, I don't have to enjoy washing dishes, but I can wash dishes and at least be at peace, right? I'm doing something productive. I don't have to be upset about it. And it's those little things you catch yourself. Would you, would you agree with that? That it's like 100% you can't see, you know, if you're listening, you can't see, I've been nodding and smiling the whole way along um, because that is so fundamental to this practice of meditation. It's the ability to understand that, oh, I don't need to create the suffering in my own mind that I am creating. Like dishes is one that's actually near to my heart because I hated doing dishes, like (laughs) vitriolically hated them. Um, And so there was the point in time when I realized, hey, I'm going to have to wash these dishes. I can just think about this differently. And, you know, you can be mindful about it and, you know, classic mindful dishwashing, you're feeling the sensation of the soap and your hand against the dish. And you're like, oh, this feels so good. And it becomes almost sensual. You're like, you know, in the water and maybe you're feeling all the different textures of the things in there. And rather than the food being super gross and grossing you out, which it used to do, like the floating food bits, you'd be like, oh, that's just a sensorial experience. 
I, I'm not eating it. You know, there's no reason it has to make me feel sick. It just, it's what's there. This food nourished me. It's still sitting there and being nourishing. Like I entirely flipped the script on the experience and it changed my experience of this basic thing. At which point you realize you can change your experience of almost anything. And yes, as your story suggests, we can be in some pretty unfortunate scenarios in our life with chronic illness, you know, in the hospital with people who are sick around us with, you know, very difficult scenarios. And you can make the choice in those scenarios to allow the shittiness of the situation to overwhelm you or, and it takes a lot of strength and a lot of, you know, um, perception to do it, or you can begin to shift that narrative and accept what is that you can't change at that moment and start to be grateful and aware of that, which you can shift, which is the way that you see the world around you. And this has an extraordinarily physiological benefit at times when you do it right. So there's amazing research out of Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn's lab. She is a Nobel Prize winning scientist. And she and Alyssa Upfeld did some of the first real research on the cellular impacts of meditation. And they took a cohort of mothers who are caring for chronically ill children. So these are moms who are super stressed caring for their kids, really worried about them, worried about their futures. And they taught half of them a meditation practice and the other half were the controls. And then they measured their cellular markers, um, particularly their telomeres, which is the length of your DNA. And some of you may have heard about this in relation to meditation because it became a very groundbreaking um, insight that meditation can actually change the length of your telomeres. So for those women that they had taught the meditation practice, you know, they ask them their perceived stress scales, you know, their level of anxiety in their life, et cetera. And the women were significantly less stressed. They felt more in control of their own lives, even though nothing had changed in their kids' care, but they felt a greater measure of control. And when they looked at their cellular markers, like their telomere length, they actually saw an improvement in cellular aging like an improvement in the cellular milieu, that's how Dr. Blackburn describes it, of those women. And the conclusion was that simply our thoughts, whether they be positive or negative, can actually have an impact on the cellular makeup inside of your body and the health and well-being of those cells. So your thinking really can affect your body and your physiology and your health. Hey, I just want to take a quick second and thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you're enjoying it so far. As a special thank you for tuning into this episode, I want to give you my number one Amazon best-selling book absolutely free. You can go download it right now at becomingcancerfree.com. If you want to learn evidence-based strategies for helping your body become a cancer-fighting machine for not only cancer reversal but cancer prevention, go grab a copy of the book. Again, I'm just giving it to you for free. You can go download it at becomingcancerfree.com. All right, let's get back to the show. It's so true, and thank you for sharing that study. I mean, there's there's so many fascinating studies out there, right, about meditation and our biology and our physiology and how it impacts and helps improve our health, our performance, our our mindset, our literally the activation upregulation of our immune system. 
I know there was a study I wrote about uh, a little while ago that um, followed, uh, I believe it was eight people. Uh, it was a small study, but it was a, it was a good one who meditated an hour a day and they saw a 65% increase in dopamine through one hour a day meditations. Now, dopamine is essential as a, not only a feel good uh, hormone and molecule, but also the motivation molecule, right? It actually motivates us to keep doing good things because we feel good after, like after an ice bath, you might take an ice bath for a few minutes and feel terrible uh, if you're, if you're not used to it, but shortly after you start to feel amazing and you have this growing release of dopamine that happens for hours after the ice bath. Well, meditation does a similar thing and increases dopamine. Well, dopamine is a precursor to activating the immune system. And for all the people in our community who are dealing with cancer or have cancer in their family or their interest is cancer prevention or cancer healing, we know the immune system is essential for helping the body fight against cancer. So, you know, that's, uh, I think, a really fascinating uh, study as well, that meditation and however you do it, having a practice can lead to, you know, tremendous uh, physical benefit as well as mental benefit. What have you seen directly with meditation in the brain? What's happening to the brain uh, when you meditate? So there are an extraordinary number of physical, physiological changes that actually happen to the brain during meditation. So uh, one very famous study comes from Dr. Um, Sarah Lazar out of Harvard. And she looked at the prefrontal cortex of meditators and non-meditators. So the prefrontal cortex is the part of the front of your brain that's responsible for your higher order processing, your attention, your planning, your organization, your inhibition of actions, um, all of the things that make us the quote unquote higher beings, end quote, <laughs> that we are. Um, and in average individuals, as you age, your prefrontal cortex thins, just like the various muscles in your body weaken. Dr. Lazar was able to demonstrate that in long-term meditators, they were able to maintain the thickness of their prefrontal cortex, even as they aged. And so she had one study participant who was 50 years old, and he had the prefrontal cortex thickness of about a 25-year-old. So this idea that, you know, meditation can make real change in your body also extends to the brain. There's another amazing study um, out of Australia, and it shows that a long-term meditator's brain can look on average 7.5 years younger than a non-meditator. So when the study part went when the researchers looked at the brains of these long-term meditators, which they defined as somebody who meditates for five years or more, they were able to see changes like thickness of the prefrontal cortex, increased density of gray matter, increased size and volume of certain areas of the brain. And those brains looked on average like somebody who should be 7.5 years younger than they actually were. So meditation really makes a range of changes. Other changes you see are um, increase in the size of the hippocampus as you age. So the hippocampus is a part of your brain associated with learning and memory. And as you age, it tends to shrink. And cortisol, stress hormone, can hasten, increase the shrinkage of your hippocampus. And it seems that meditation may have a protective effect and reduce the amount of shrinkage of your hippocampus as you age. Um, now that makes sense because, you know, the more we're stressed out, 
especially this chronic stress we're dealing with today with these fast paced lives and people working jobs that they hate and out in traffic and road rage and, you know, add to it a bad diet that also makes you feel bad. You know, lots of grease and lots of sugar and lots of processed food, you know, add, you know, the stress, the financial stress, the inflation, the government stress, you add all this. I mean, it's, it's amazing that we're even alive, right? The, the amount of stressors that we experience every day, add all that stress, and compound it together. And, you know, every time we're stressed out, we're, we're releasing uh, hormones that are downregulating our immune system and increasing a cascade of inflammatory responses, hormonal responses in the body. One of those is cortisol. Now, cortisol gets a bad rap. It's actually a really important hormone for a lot of reasons, right? But when it is released too often, continuously at a chronic level, and then, you know, it's, and then we're having other hormones that are like galactin three, which is actually not a hormone, it's a protein, but it's a precursor. It's an upstream uh, protein that then, you know, connects to, it's like a bus driver for like interleukin six and other inflammatory markers that then drive the inflammatory process. We're living and we're bathing in a sea of chronic inflammation every single day with cortisol constantly released in the bloodstream. And what happens is the immune system is downregulated. No wonder cancer is skyrocketing. And Type 3 diabetes, which is also known as neurodegenerative disease, like Alzheimer's, for example, is skyrocketing. No wonder that these chronic diseases are just totally out of control because we are so stressed out. And if meditation reduces the amount of cortisol that's released, right, which we know it does uh, because it helps to release dopamine and helps to relax the, the, ner the autonomic nervous system, so parasympathetic is upregulated, which means that the nervous system's relaxed, we are relaxed, then it would make sense that the uh, hippocampus actually um, does not get affected negatively. So I think that's really fascinating. And um, so many benefits of, of, of a meditation practice. When we, so you were talking about the downregulation of the parasympathetic nervous system. And I kind of want to dive into that for a second and explain a little bit more fully what's happening there. So when you have a negative thought, um, there's a part of your brain called the amygdala. So the amygdala is the fight or flight response center of the brain. It's the part of your brain that's always scanning for danger. And as you're looking around for danger, your amygdala will look at something that actually is really dangerous, like a fire or is scary, but not actually dangerous to you, like a picture of a fire or something that's not even real in your head, like a thought of a fire that causes your um, amygdala to fire, um, that sends messages down your HPA axis, pituitary thalamic adrenal axis, that signals for cortisol to run through. The cortisol rushes through your body, which you know gets you ready to deal with whatever that stressor is, run, run away from the fire, et cetera. Um, but often those fires are not real fires. And so the thought of fires, fires your amygdala, which makes your body feel kind of anxious, which then gives you the reinforcement that, oh, something must be wrong. You know, I'm feeling that like ramped sense. My heart is racing. Wow. Like something must be wrong, which gives you thoughts that are some, that something is wrong, which fires your amygdala more in this feed forward cycle. What meditation does is it's been demonstrated to downregulate the activity of the amygdala. So it goes right to the source of the issue and rather than 
um, priming the amygdala to have more anxious thoughts, it's been shown to downregulate the amygdala. And in MRI studies, you may be able to see may be able to see that people who have a meditation practice have less activity in their amygdala, and people who have a long term meditation practice, some have even been shown to have a smaller size of their amygdala. And there's another interesting angle to this. If you remember, I talked about the prefrontal cortex, which is kind of the organizational center of the brain. It's kind of the parent. If you think about the amygdala as the child, the child that's always freaking out when, you know, there's a shadow on the wall. Oh no, it's a monster, you know, and the prefrontal cortex being the parent who can come in and say, oh, that's just a shadow on the wall. Everything's okay. You know, remember we talked about having this metacognition, this ability to look at your own thinking. That's part of the domain of the prefrontal cortex. So your amygdala can be freaked out and your prefrontal cortex can come in rationally and say, hey, actually everything's fine. Calm down. It's all good. And in brains of people who have a long-term meditation practice, what you actually see is a strengthening. You can see a strengthening of the relationship between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, such that the prefrontal cortex is more readily able to calm the amygdala and downregulate it. So right from the neural level, you're able to intervene with these tools that you've learned to go, shh, it's all good which then leads to the cascade of the amygdala quieting, you know, reduction in the triggering of the HPA axis, reduction of the cortisol in your body, reduction of the inflammation, and all of the downstream effects of having um, heightened stress or anxiety and a, you know, highly overly primed vigilant system. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for, for going deeper on that. And I think it's very helpful. And and I think it's also helpful to talk about the difference between the the experience of, okay, yeah, whatever, just do it your way kind of thing where you don't really have the ability to let go of whatever that, that, that situation is and you bottle it inside versus, okay, that's fine. No problem. Sure. Right. You get it, right? Like, Oh, it's, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's a totally different thing and it takes, and meditation helps you get to that point where, and I'm bringing this up because of what you just said. I, I remember like if, if I got into an argument with my wife, you know, 10 years ago or whatever it was that was, you know, early in, in my meditation practice, it might take me hours or days to, to really come to grips with whatever, it was and let it go and be okay with it. Like, okay, that's okay. I let it go. I don't need to be right. I don't need to be the one who is winning here. I don't need, it's like, it's fine. I can let it go. It might, it might've taken me a long time then. Now, if I get into an argument with my wife, it, I can let it go literally in seconds. Now, sometimes it might go a few minutes and that's a really long time for me. And it's pretty rare. It has to be something I'm probably like pretty passionate about or really triggered about, but I can, get into that kind of energy of, you know, that negative energy or whatever, I got to be right, or I got to, you know, be the one who's winning or whatever that subconscious thing might be. And I can literally see it and go, Oh, nope, that's not what I want. Um, it's okay, I let it go. And, and I can let it go literally in seconds most of the time. And so the, the beautiful thing I'm sharing here for everyone tuning in is not to you know, toot my horn about this. It's because of having a meditation practice for years that I have very few stressors than I used to. 
I have way less stress in my relationships than I used to. I have, you know, way less things that trigger me and cause me to get outraged than I used to. They still happen from time to time. I'm not levitating yet, you know, <laughs> not enlightened yet, you know, maybe one day, but <laughs> certainly not yet. Um, but I, I have way less than I used to and, and I can overcome them almost instantly most of the time. And, and the power you have for yourself through this practice is so amazing because you don't get stressed out very often. And because of that, you're going to be healthier, you're going to think better, you're going to be happier, you're going to have more peace in your life, you're going to have an upregulated immune system more often, your brain, just as you talked about all the scientific studies, is going to be younger, uh, telomere length you know, can increase, you know, chronic inflammation can be reduced, all of these things can happen. But on a day-to-day -day basis, it's like, hey, I just, things just don't bother me as much as they used to. Did you find that yes. with yourself as well? 100%. So as you were sharing about your moment of revelation, when you woke up on that couch, on that mattress that smelled like pee, and you had that moment of like, ooh, like I can see my thoughts. What I recalled was the first time I had the experience you just described of being with my husband and him being mad at me and me rather than just jumping in to like be right and be filled with ego could stand back and say, oh, you are right. And I could like, see all of the ego rising. I could feel all of the like, you know, the tension that starts to build as you're like, oh, you know, it's this is so stupid. It's usually better dishwasher. <laughs> this is like <laughs> early in our marriage, like 80% of the arguments. Um, and I was like, why do you need it so specific? This is driving me crazy. And and he'd be like, put the dish this way. And I'd be like, oh, hurry. And you know, <laughs> totally tense about it. And in my meditation practice, you know, I talked about being able to observe your thoughts and not get caught up in them and let, let them go. After you build that facility, you can then move on to experiencing your emotions in the same way. So um, I would see the emotion of tension rise and I would see the emotion of resistance rise. And I remember like the time so viscerally when I could see that rise and I could be like, why am I resisting? Like, why is it so important that I put the dish in my way rather than his way? Does it matter? No. Do I lose anything? No. Whoa. And I like, it was like a revelation, like literally a revelation that this resistance that I carried for so long for no reason, because I never stopped to think about it, to experience it, to realize that I could do something about it you know, it used to just rise and overtake me and I'd be stuck in that state. And now I could see it rise. I could say, oh, I can just like move aside because you're just a feeling, you know, the feeling would rise, the feeling would fall. And it'd be like, that was actually useless. And I don't need to get caught in that emotional trap any longer. And it's the process of meditation that teaches you both the observation as well as equanimity. And the idea of equanimity is being okay with what is not resisting the world around you um, because there's so much in our world that we either can't change or it just doesn't serve us to spend time changing yet we continue to resist against it and as we resist we create emotional tension we create you know an, an urge and a need a holding a clenching a holding on to you know a, a, i must be right i i i i 
And when you accept that the thing just is and that you don't need all of that holding and clenching intention, it just, that's what it is, then you can let all of those feelings just pass through you. And all of a sudden the world becomes so much calmer because you're not in an internal battle and resistance with, you know, meaningless things constantly. Like, wow, does a sense of peace just arise when you accept what is, when you step into equanimity. Yeah, it's so powerful. And I'm, I remember conversations I've had, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of cancer patients directly and, and asked them questions like this uh, to, to try to understand their mindset better. When someone tells me that cancer is the greatest thing that ever happened to me, I want to understand why. And someone else tells me cancer is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I want to understand why. And so when I ask them why, it's so, so fascinating to see the difference, right? Somebody who says cancer is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Why is that? Well, because I'm in, you know, I'm in pain or I, my medical bills, it's just my life. I, I don't know, you know, the fear, the anxiety, I don't know what's, obviously I f absolutely feel for somebody in that situation. It's, I mean, I, I have so much empathy and compassion mm -hmm. and it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. And then I talk to somebody stage four, you know, cancer, uh, survivor or stage four cancer patient, they still have cancer, but they say it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. I say, why? Tell me why. You know, it's, it's helped me connect deeper to my own purpose in life. It's helped me get out of my own, you know, ego and focus on what can I do to help others. It's helped me to take better control of my health, my diet, my nutrition. I've changed everything about eating and I exercise now. I do sauna and I do all these things where I actually feel amazing. And, oh, in fact, actually the cancer stopped growing as well, by the way, and I'm starting to feel better and I have a better relationship with my, my parents or my, you know, my children, whatever it might be. And so... And I've, I've heard that over and over and over again, where cancer is actually a wake up call and cancer is a blessing. And so it's not easy for somebody with a new, new cancer diagnosis to go, oh, yeah, it's a wake up call is a blessing, right? They're like, oh, my God, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me, especially when you walk into an oncologist's office and they say, you have cancer, you have three months left to live, we got to rush into chemotherapy, radiation, surgery right away, you're going to die. And someone's like, oh, my God, what do I do, right? And that's why having a meditation practice is essential because you can actually step back and go, hmm. Okay, let me let me sit with this for a little bit. Let me really process this and meditate on this and ask good questions and not act out of fear. And let me act out of a place of, of empowerment. And how do you get empowered? We've got to educate ourselves, get a second opinion, a third opinion, talk to a functional medical doctor, an integrated medical doctor, a holistic doctor. Let me learn more about this, you know, before I take any actions that could directly impact my physical body in my life for the rest of my life, something that may be irreversible, like surgery or chemotherapy or radiation in, in many cases. So let me, you know, take a step back. And that's where that that meditation practice comes in. And many of the cancer patients that I've worked with, I've coached, I've consulted with, one of the things that they attribute as part of their healing journeys, people who I call cancer conquerors, stage two, stage three, stage four, all kinds of cancer, that they've reversed using a holistic approach or an integrative approach, meditation, some form of meditation or Qigong, some form of, of uh, mental emotional practice and usually multiple practices, um, they claim it was essential to their healing. And I believe it 100%, 100%. Yeah. 
The Mayo Clinic uh, started a study in 2014 uh, looking at women with breast cancer waiting. The Mayo Clinic in 2014 began a study back in the early days of Muse using Muse for women with breast cancer. And what they did was they gave Muse to, uh, I believe, 30 women who are awaiting surgery for breast cancer. They used it for some weeks before and some weeks after their surgery for a minimum of three minutes a day. And what they saw was an increase in quality of life and a decrease in the women's stress and fatigue during the entire cancer care process. And the women continued to use the device like after their cancer care was finished because it continued to give them benefit and give them improved QOL. So Muse is, is your company you started, your, your co-founder, CEO, right? Former CEO. I stepped down at my first maternity leave. Ah, you did. Okay. So um, I know it's a hugely successful company and um, you guys have some really cool devices, meditation devices and, and a pretty amazing app. Um, I've actually been experimenting with it the last couple of months. I have, I've tried um, both of them, the, this one, what's this one called? Just the Muse. Muse 2 and the Muse, Muse S. Two. And yep. then I so have the Muse, Muse S. Yeah. And I like the Muse S the best just because it's like, it's super comfortable and you can use it for everything, right? If you want to use it for sleeping, if you want to use it just regular meditating, I really like this one. Um, and, the, and the app is pretty, like the meditations, the guided meditations on the app are pretty amazing. So talk about, you know, how, how, does, how does this technology work? Um, it, it basically is a brain scan. It, it follows your heart rate. Can you talk about the technology behind the device and then, you know, how, how you're using it to support people with their meditation? Sure. So Muse is a brain sensing headband that helps you meditate and sleep. And it is in the same way that a Fitbit sits on your wrist and it has sensors that track your steps. The Muse sits on your forehead and it has EEG sensors that track your brain waves. So as you think, whether you're in meditation state or non-meditation state, the muse can pick up that difference in brain state and actually turn it into guiding sounds. So muse is actually guiding you during your meditation with real-time feedback from your brain so that you know when you're meditating and when you're not, when your mind is wandering. In addition, it has uh, heart rate sensors, accelerometers, gyroscopes to create a whole range of different kinds of meditation experiences um, from the focused attention meditation that we talked about earlier, where you're focusing on your breath and your mind is wandering to heart-based meditations, breath meditations, body meditations, and more. Hey, I just want to pause a second and ask you, are you enjoying this episode so far? Are you getting good value from this content? If so, then I know you're going to absolutely love Healing Life. At HealingLife.net, you get exclusive and premier access to hundreds of the top world's doctors, experts, cancer conquerors, and survivors, exclusive interviews that I have done with all these experts and doctors uh, that are not available for free online. They're only available at HealingLife.net. So not only do you get access to all of those, but you actually get to speak with these doctors and experts and ask them any question you want about health and healing. And this is available exclusively to Healing Life members. You can try it out for free. 
Go to healinglife.net and you can start your free trial there. And uh, whether you're interested in learning more about detox or cancer, diet and nutrition and nutritional science, about diabetes, about heart disease, autoimmune disease, anti-aging, longevity, all of these topics are covered in depth and more are continuing to be added at Healing Life. And again, you get to talk to these doctors yourself. So I invite you to set up a free trial at healinglife.net, and I hope to see you over there. Now, let's get back to the show. So why would somebody use this rather than just um, just sitting down and meditating or just sitting and like putting on a YouTube meditation or something like that? So as we talked about in those beginning times when you're trying to learn how to meditate, it's very difficult to actually know what to do. Like you're sitting there alone with your thoughts. You're like, is my brain supposed to go quiet? Like, what am I doing here? Plenty, and so, plenty of those experiences for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, myself as well. And so Muse actually gives you real-time feedback to know when you're meditating. And so what it does is it translates your state of meditation into sound. The metaphor we use is your mind is like the weather. So when you're thinking or distracted, when you are mind wandering, you hear it as actually stormy. And as you come to quiet focused attention on your breath, it quiets the storm. You hear it nice and calm and quiet. And so you're literally hearing when you're meditating. And so it guides you to know when you're doing it right. And it reinforces you to stay in that meditation state because you hear like the chirping of little birds, which will ramp your dopamine. And you have all sorts of uh, motivational architectures and structures around it to help you both start and continue your practice. That's pretty cool. And so you... Uh, you invented this or what, what I know you had some previous experience that kind of led you to starting this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I started working in a research lab back in 2001 with Dr. Steve Mann. He's a professor at the University of Toronto, who is one of the inventors of the wearable computer. And he had an early um, EEG interface that we had been using to transform your brain activity into sound. And so we would have people come in, slip on an EEG electrode, and by shifting their brain state, by focusing or relaxing, we could program that to shift the music that they would be hearing or the lights around them. And so from there, I stood back and said like, wow, this is extraordinary. I was studying neuroscience and the idea that you could actually have a tangible interaction with your brain was, was mind boggling. And so I got together with uh, Chris Amini, who is one of Steve's students in the lab and Trevor Coleman, and they became my co-founders. And the three of us really took the technology out of the lab. And um, when we thought about what is the best use of this, like what is the highest use for humanity of this technology, we recognized it was to help people meditate, mm. to really be able to answer that question of like, how do I meditate? Am I doing this right? Like, is this thing working? And if we could just get more people meditating, we would make the world a better place. Oh, 100%. I mean, we got to get every politician wearing this and meditating every day right now. Like, <laughs> please, <we> would... <laughs> I wish. <laughs> right? Oh, my gosh. But I mean, for athletes, for, you know, uh, whether you're dealing with a chronic disease or just trying to live longer and healthier, whether you're, you know, wanting to to have a, a guided practice or lots of different meditations. I think what I like about the app, so it just, it's super easy, connects to the app on the phone, right? And the app has like 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of meditations, whether it's like just nature sounds. Um, I, I was doing one the other day that was like rainfall. It was really beautiful. Um, or like an actual voice. So voice guiding you, you know, that, that just voice guided meditations on different kinds of things, whether it's like reducing stress or it's improving performance at work or, or, or uh, as an athlete or so many different kinds of, of guided meditations, which I think is great. So one thing I, I didn't see, and maybe I just missed it was like, I saw most of the meditations are, are shorter. And is that because it's more for like beginner meditators? Like I saw they're like three minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes. Because um, for me, like to my experience with meditation is now I just, I kind of do that throughout the day. I do like five minute meditations, like in the morning, at night, all throughout the day before meetings, interviews, things like that. But when I started, I would meditate for sometimes hours at a time, but starting at like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then work up to like an hour, two hours. And for me, it was really profound and really helpful to go into deep, long meditations. And I know most people will not do that. They just, they just won't do it for time's sakes or desire or whatever. But um, is it also good for, for, you know, kind of experienced meditators? Is it primarily focused for kind of new or beginner meditators, meditators? So Muse has a range of different ways that you can use it and has been very successful for beginners as well as expert meditators. So um, we have settings where you can turn off all of the sounds and just use it to track your meditation. And you can go for three hours with the Muse simply tracking your brain state. Oh, um, I got to find, I got to look yeah. that up. I didn't know it did that. That's really cool. Yeah. You can do it in the timer function. You can do it under Muse Mind. You can customize any of the sounds. So if you like just the chirping of the birds when you're in focused attention, you can hear just that. Um, you could have voice guidance, turn the voice guidance off. And so what we find is beginners love it because they can finally figure out how to meditate. And then more advanced and even extremely advanced meditators love it because it's a whole new way to see your mind. You know, as a meditator, part of your job is learning to observe your thinking. And here is something that is like shining a mirror and a whole new light on your brain. It's extraordinary. Well, I love it. And I, I recommend it. We share it with our community. You know, we've, we've partnered with Muse because um, I think it's a great tool for people wanting to meditate or deepen their meditations. I've been using it. I've been experimenting with it. So um, we do have a discount for everybody. It's 20% off. If you want to go check it out for yourself, we'll put a link below in the show notes or just go to Panacea Muse panaceamuse.com that'll forward you to the muse website where you can check it out for yourself i i do highly recommend it i think it's pretty awesome a pretty awesome tool something amazing that you created and i love that you said you know what's the highest good we could do with this technology for the world and it's teaching people how to meditate um you could probably you know do some some nefarious things with it and uh uh, as unfortunately some people do when they discover new technologies. So I'm glad that you used it for meditation. So how has Muse been used uh, for helping athletes? So there are actually a lot of athletes that use Muse. You know, it's been used either by a coach who brings it in to a team who's not ready to meditate. And they say, you know, here's this cool technology that's going to help you up your game. Or they come into athletes who are already really deep in their meditation practice and they give them Muse to help them track and hone their skill. So we've had Olympic athletes that use Muse, many different teams, the Kansas City Royals, um, the LA Galaxy, um, Raptors, that 
team that won a lot of uh, the NFL Super Bowls, multiples, they've used it. We also had a number of basketball players. We even have ambassadors um, who just started using these on their own, loved it so much that they came to us and said, you know, hey, can we can we tell everybody about this? Um, because it's helped me win whatever trophy or whatever uh, performance field they're in. So it's, it's quite a... Um, don't know where I'm going with this. Um, so it's really quite a useful tool to help you hone in on your sports practice. What kind of, for the athletes, do you know which, which meditations they were, they were using? Was it, uh, just all different ones? Do you know much about it? So it depends on their goals. Um, in the guided meditations, we have a baseball collection and that came out of our work with some different major league baseball teams. We also have a um, sports performance collection. So that's good both for athletes as well as people who are at the gym and you want to, you know, push past and you feel the sensation of the burn. And how do you relate to that burn in a new way? Um, a lot of the emotional regulation and stress uh, sections are also used by athletes because it helps them manage the stress of, you know, the crowd and the stress of being in the moment, um, having to perform at their top. And it really depends on what their coaches think they need at that moment. For other athletes, they focus on the sleep um, and they're using the muse to track their sleep through the night. They're using it with their coaches to help them understand, you know, what are the triggers that led to poor sleep? And, you know, they use like our digital sleeping pills and other sleep interventions to help improve their sleep. So athletics can come at it from all sides because it becomes both a game of, you know, focus and mental skill of emotional self-regulation and of rest and recovery. And what about for someone dealing with like a chronic health condition? So we actually have a number of different hospitals and institutions that use Muse. There are thousands of doctors and naturopaths that both recommend Muse and use it themselves. Um, the Mayo Clinic, as I said, they did their first study in breast cancer in 2014. Since then, they've had probably six different studies running with Muse. Um, their doctors in their emergency rooms use Muse to deal with burnout. They've looked at fibromyalgia, chronic pain. Um, we have other uh, clinics that specifically focus on pain that have run studies with Muse, demonstrating that Muse can help manage your emotional self-regulation and improve your quality of life through pain. Um, Baycrest, which is a facility that looks at geriatric care and cognitive function. Um, they use Muse with older adults to um, help manage age-related cognitive decline. Um, we've had other institutions use Muse with OCD, um, ADHD. So it's really across the board because there's so many ways in which simply managing your emotional state and decreasing your stress, as you've talked about so many times, can help a range of different conditions. That's awesome. Well, like I said, for anyone that wants to check this out, for our podcast listeners, you can get 20% off Muse. Go check it out for yourself, panaceamuse.com. And uh, we'll put a link below. Personal question for you is, what does your personal meditation practice look like today? Oh, it looks like so many things. I love that question. So when I wake up in the morning, first thing I take a moment before I 
do all of the things to just sit there and be grateful to get in touch with myself, my day, to set my intention. Um, sometimes I will be awoken by my little son coming in. He's currently six and, you know, looking me right in the face, asking some kind of question like, what can he have for breakfast or what can he do? And so I just take a moment with him. From there, I typically do a more formal practice in the middle of the day using often muse-focused attention because that's kind of my my go-to. Um, and then as things come up in the day, I'll bring in a meditation practice to help me deal with whatever's arising. So, you know, I might feel my shoulders increasing in their tension. I might, you know, be triggered by my husband. Um, and then I will bring in those practices and tools that you and I have talked about as you train, you know, as you sit there and train on the mat and you don't have to be sitting cross-legged when you do your meditation, but when you sit there and train, you have those resources at your ready when you need them, when, when you're about to get angry at your kid, when your husband annoys you, when whatever it is. And then in the evening, I will do a formal practice practice as I lie in bed. Um, and then I'll often do a muse meditation to help me fall asleep, um, just to kind of cap off the day in the most delicious of ways. Do you, do you actually wear the, the device when you sleep or do you just listen to it on the app, uh, from your phone? How do you do it, uh, to help you go to sleep? I go back and forth. So I'm actually a very, very good sleeper and I don't typically need help falling asleep. Um, I just listen to it because I love it. And so sometimes I will just listen. Sometimes I'll wear it and track my night's sleep because it's wonderful. I went through a period of waking up in the middle of the night. And for that, wearing my muse throughout the night was invaluable because when I would wake back up again, the muse would wake up with me and then bring back in the same meditation that helped me fall asleep in the first place. And so, you know, what should have been a miserable period of, of being awake in the middle of the night just became like a lovely wake up, listen to some audio, magically fall back asleep. It was incredibly powerful. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, sleep, I've, oh my God, we could talk for hours and hours on sleep and, and I teach a lot about sleep in my master classes to cancer patients, the importance of a good night high quality sleep, especially getting into that deep sleep state. Um, I mean, majority of the studies show, you know, we should be getting at least seven to nine hours of sleep. That's kind of the sweet spot, right? For mental health, for physical health, you know, we got to get into that deep, deep sleep state, which is where autophagy happens. And, you know, we can actually clean up uh, some of the cellular waste that's going on in the body and clean up the cancer cells. So like sleep is essential. And I know so many people struggle with sleep as I used to. I didn't take it very serious um, until probably the last seven or eight years, maybe, maybe a little longer now. I've taken it more seriously um, and, and made like created a, you know, a routine, right? And it's getting that routine dialed in. And I know if I do that routine every night, I'm most likely... 90% of the time I'm going to sleep good. Let's say 80% of the time I'm going to sleep good. Um, you know, 10%, some things might come up. I might wake up a few too many times. Um, and, you know, 10%, who knows? You never know what happens. Sometimes I get just amazing sleep. But I'd say it's a good, good practice, good quality sleep, roughly seven and a half hours every night right now. It's like what my because I track it with the whoop. So it tells me actually how many hours I get every night. Um, 
not how many hours you're in bed. That's totally different, right? I'm in bed nine hours most nights and nine hours gives me seven and a half hours of sleep. So one distinction that I think is important for people to understand that just because you're in bed for eight hours that you might be getting six hours of sleep. And actually the studies show if you have less than seven on an ongoing basis, your all-cause mortality risk goes up like significantly. So it's important to track it with something like Muse or, or whatever device you're using. But, you know, the, the thing for me with like the, the, the sleep, using this to help people sleep, I think is, is a great tool because, um, you know, you want to use whatever can help if you struggle with sleep. Like me, because I have such a routine for so long, I tried sleeping with it and it actually disrupted my sleep. So I can't sleep with it or else I'd have to like add it into my routine, you know, every single day until it became part of my routine. But like, if, if you already have a really good routine, you already sleep really good. And then I add it in, it actually messed up my sleep. So I just, you know, that's kind of what happened to me, unfortunately. Yeah. So if you, for those who have poor sleep already, um, it can be incredibly helpful to help you sleep. If you already have great sleep, you don't need it to help the sleep function. Um, we did a study with Dr. Adrian Owen, um, and he's a famous British neuroscientist, and he showed out of a population of 150 people with sleep who suffered from poor sleep, they had a 20% increase in quality of sleep wearing the muse overnight. So they fell asleep faster, they tend to stay asleep and even reported better dreams. So it, you know, Muse is very customizable, so you can use it in the way that works well for you, whether it's just listening to something to help you fall asleep or wearing the band to really kind of supercharge your ability to sleep well when you have poor sleep to begin with. Yeah, that's awesome. So what uh, what's next for you? You stepped down from CEO uh, of Muse and what are you what what's what's on your horizon? Oh, I might have stepped down as the CEO, but I'm still uh, very deep in the muse. So you know, my life's mission is to help people understand that the things that go on in your head, the negative stories that you tell yourself, the stress, the anxiety, the frustration, they don't need to determine your life. You can actually change those narratives and change your relationship to your thoughts and your thinking to help you live far more freely and far more healthily. So my, my main mission is to teach people how to shift their internal dialogues with tools like meditation and muse to help live uh, deeper, more flourishing lives. And it's incredibly gratifying that it's working. Hmm. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Ariel. Thanks for uh, taking the time. Um, thanks for being here. Uh, this was, I, I had a great, great time talking with you. So I um, appreciate it. Oh, it was a joy and a pleasure and, and so fun to find the moments of meditation that, you know, that you described that I'm like, yes, I know that moment. Yes. <laughs> I, I, flashbulb memory to when that happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many, you know, it's like when you meditate for years and years, it's like you have so many experiences and moments that, uh, I mean, there, there are literally hundreds that I could share that are just like life-changing, life, literally yeah. life-changing moments, right? I mean, we need... I'm sure you have hundreds as well. We'd need a few more hours just to talk about it. But um, if, if for those tuning in, if you don't meditate yet uh, and you've already listened to this entire podcast, I encourage you to uh, start a meditation practice, even if only for a short time each day. Try it with Muse. Try it with whatever you want. But 
have a meditation practice, even if it's 10 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at a time, five minutes, whatever, ideally longer is, is better in my experience, 20, 30 minutes to start really getting into it. But at least get some kind of practice going with some kind of guided meditation. I think that's a better place to start for people is a guided meditation. Um, and, and then experience it for yourself, right? Experience it for yourself. If you already have a meditation practice. Awesome. Let us know in the comments below. Have you used Muse? Do you like it? Uh, what do you think about it? And also if you have a, you know, advanced meditation practice, what, what do you do? What are some of your favorite meditations? I'd love to learn from all of you who are tuning in what you've learned from meditation, what it's done for your own life and uh, how I can learn from you uh, about meditation. So let us know in the comments below. So I uh, appreciate you all tuning in. Appreciate you, Ariel, and uh, everybody take care. Uh, be healthy. Be well. Thanks for listening to the Nathan Crane Podcast. If you found value in today's podcast, please share it with others. Subscribe to catch future episodes and leave a rating and a review. For more information or to connect with Nathan, check him out online at www.nathancrane.com and follow him on Facebook and YouTube at Nathan Crane. Until next time, this has been the Nathan Crane Podcast.